very, very interesting study for you uh, this morning. And uh, uh, as we continue in the series, The Sin Issue, um, I hope that uh, you're being blessed. Uh, you're learning some things. I tell you, I am. Every time you open the Bible, you should learn something <laughs> about Jesus, about God, uh, about our condition, and uh, how we can overcome. And so, uh, with that in mind, let's have a word of prayer before we get started here this morning. So I invite you to bow your heads uh, with me now. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for the Holy Sabbath day. That you love us, that you have provided for all our needs, especially you've provided a way for us to be members of the family again. Uh, You've sent your Son uh, to die in our place because of our sins and uh, our transgressions, and our iniquities. He died for it all, and uh, so that we can be saved. And so we are very, very thankful uh, for your love towards us in giving such a precious gift. We're thankful for Jesus, who was willing to do it. He was more willing to do that than, than anything. And he wished for us to, uh, to be saved, and He loves us that much. We're thankful for the Holy Spirit as well, who brings us into the truth, convicts us of what is right and wrong, and uh, helps us uh, to uplift Jesus. And so we're very thankful, Father, uh, for all that you have done and that you are doing. And we pray that you will pour out that Spirit this morning uh, into each one of our hearts and minds as we study this most um, important topic to understand so that uh, we can be overcomers in order to uh, solve a, a health issue we need to know what the problem is and that's what sin is it's an issue it's a spiritual issue that brings death and so we need to understand it uh, father we pray for those uh, we've spoken of earlier today we pray for eduardo and uh, what they're doing in Washington today, we pray that many souls will be saved. They'll take this literature, they'll read it, they'll listen to the testimonies that are happening today, and it will it will con, uh, come into their heart and convict them. Uh, and Father, we lift up uh, also Lynn. Uh, we pray that you be very near her and, their, and the family. Uh, may they be drawn to Jesus. You use can use these situations, um, you know, of our mortality to bring the truth to our minds. And so I pray for that. Uh, I pray for angels to surround Susan and Christopher as they travel back home. And please continue to be with our friend Bob and everyone on our our list, Father. Uh, There's so many people. Uh, I also pray for the words to speak today. May they be your words. May they reach hearts. And may we uplift Jesus uh, today. We thank you for your love and care and for hearing this prayer because we do ask it in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, this is message, uh, this message I've entitled Uprooting Sin. Uprooting Sin. It's uh, part of the, the series, The Sin Issue. My older brother and I have been, as some of you are aware, um, We've been the health care helpers and advisors for our mother the past few years as she's gotten older. she's uh, This year she will turn 84 in September. Um, 
I tell you, friends, isn't it true that it's, it's hard to, to see the effects of sin on a human being? <laughs> Whether it's ourselves or someone else, isn't that true? And God well knows that too. But it does remind one of the promise of heaven and the change we can look forward to, doesn't it? Aren't you tired of seeing sin prevail? One day it's going to come to an end. Isn't that glorious to know? But my brother helps my mother um, with uh, you know her uh, doctor's appointments and health things like that, and and uh, he he kind of oversees her finances as well. And I I help wherever I can, but mainly I kind of deal with the properties. And so part of this responsibility that I have, of course, uh, is to mow and trim the yards. And I haven't been able to, for most of the summer, uh, spring and so far this summer, I haven't been able to trim because I needed a new trimmer. So the edges and the beds, you know, have gotten a bit out of hand. One such flower bed of my mother's has been taken over by this pervasive plant, uh, which has really frustrated her. Um, So she'd mentioned the need uh, to do something about it to me every time I mowed the yard. So at least once a week I got to hear about this. But remember, I didn't have a trimmer, you know, so I kind of would put it off. But the other day, I finally looked at this bed, and it's a mess. It is a real mess. This pervasive plant. Now, it's not an ugly plant. It's just one of these pervasive covering type plants. It has really taken root, and it's choking out those beautiful flowers. And it's going to be a lot of work for me to uproot this plant from the flower bed without destroying the flowers. And I have to be sure that I remove it at the root, because if I don't, what happens? I'm not really taking care of the problem, am I? It'll come back. It'll continue to be a terrible issue. Well, friends, sin is the same way in our life. Once it takes off, it'll keep growing and it'll pervade your life and by, and by your influence, it will affect others. And if it is not uprooted, it will keep coming back. Now, when we think about the big picture, I mentioned it this morning, you know, we've got to look at the big picture. You know, the big picture for us is ending this conflict and the, the return of Jesus, isn't it? The second coming of Jesus. So when we think about that, and we have that in mind, if we want to be ready when Jesus returns, and we want to be among those redeemed, we must have the root of sin removed from us. And so I wish to talk about about that at this time, and being ready for Jesus by uprooting sin in our life. I'd like to call your attention to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24. Now, Matthew 24, Jesus was talking to his disciples, remember, about the end of times. He was talking about the uh, current situation there and, and you know what was going to happen within a few years there. But he's also talking about the end of time, which we find ourselves in today, do we not? We're living in that time. And so, we go to Matthew 24, verse 37, and you've seen this uh, uh On occasion, this is what Jesus said. He said, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. 
Now, when you read something like that, you, you go, okay, in order to understand about that time when Jesus is coming, things that are going on, we need to know about Noah, don't we? <laughs> it's, it's pointing back, isn't it? And so there are many things about the days of Noah that are similar to our own time, but one of the things that happened during the days of Noah was that there was a great surprise just before the end. Let me ask you this. Were the multitudes of the earth expecting a great flood to come? I mean, they'd been told that there was one coming, but did, did they believe it? Were they expecting for one to actually come? Yeah, see, De- Deb said it. You could kind of understand their thinking a bit because it had never rained before. So, yeah, here's this guy building a big giant, you know, ship and saying, you know, repent and, and because it's going to rain, it's going to flood the earth. And, and so, were they uh, expecting it really? No, they were not. But they were surprised weren't they? Because the flood did come and wiped out that immense population from billions of people. Jesus said that it's going to be like that at the end of the time when he returns. There are going to be a few people ready, as it was in the days of Noah. How many got on the ark? It was just eight people, wasn't it? And then all those animals. Quite a small number compared to the other inhabitants of the earth. You know, but the mass of the world population at that time they they were not ready, and that was a terrible surprise for them. When Jesus comes, it's going to be an awful surprise for most of the people in this world. Do you believe that? I want you to notice we'll go back in matthew twenty four but back up a few verses to verse thirty. Notice how he describes it. He says, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Why will they mourn? I mean, Paul, you read the epistles and the the letters that Paul wrote, Paul says very clearly that the saints are, they're not going to be mourning on that day. He said they're going to rejoice. And if you're ready, you're going to rejoice. It'll be a glad and wonderful time for the saints, but all the tribes of the earth are not going to rejoice. Jesus said here they will mourn. And why is it do you think that they will be mourning? Because they're not ready for Jesus. They're not ready. And before concluding this prophecy, Jesus gives us instruction to be ready. That's what he says. Because it's going to happen when we're not expecting it. See? So, we need to be ready, right? Back in Matthew 24. Let's look at verses 42 to 44. What is it that Jesus said? He said, Watch, therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come? He would have watched. It would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore be ye also ready. For in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. It's going to be a surprise. And he's speaking to his disciples and he says that for even you it will be at a time, at an hour when you do not expect it. 
So you take the words of Jesus here, and, and we need to be ready then all the time, don't we? Wouldn't that be the safe course? To be ready all the time, because if Jesus says to us, hey, even you are going to be surprised, we better be as ready as we possibly can for that surprise. Wouldn't you agree? And I am acutely aware, beloved, as I look at what's happening in the world and I study the prophecies in the Bible, that we are right at the end of time. It's just, it's amazing. It, it, on one hand, it's just, I don't want to sound emotional, but it's thrilling to realize we're living on the cusp of the return of Jesus. We're in that generation. But on the other hand, we know what has to happen before that that time comes. But one of these times, all of a sudden, I'm not going to be able to study God's Word with you on the Sabbath. You might not even be able to join us for church on Sabbath morning because there's a big surprise coming. And as I've, I, as I've thought about this, and I, I've, thought about the, I've thought about you, you know, you join us, the people that join us to worship the Lord on Sabbath mornings, and I've asked myself this question, um, will every single one of you be ready? Jesus said, be ready, because in an hour that you do not expect it, the Son of Man is coming. So, friends, we need to ask ourselves, personally ask ourselves, am I going to be ready? Now, what is involved in being ready? You know, there's something a lot more involved in being ready than many Christians have supposed. I think that a lot of people have a rather shallow view of the plan of salvation. Wouldn't you agree? You know? Let's see what the Apostle Peter said about being ready and what condition we should be in to be ready for the Lord to come because that is really what it's all about, isn't it? If you look at 2 Peter 3 and... Uh, well, you look at verse 10, you'll see that Peter has just been talking about the day of the Lord, right? And the, the time when this world is going to come to an end. And then in verse 14, 2 Peter 3 and verse 14, he says, Wherefore, beloved... Seeing that you look for such things, be what? He says, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless. And that's what I want to concentrate on. So we're talking about the sin issue. Peter brings it to our mind. We look for the thing, look for Jesus to come. We want him to find us, uh, be found in peace with him with Without what? Without spot and blameless. The Greek there, without spot, the Greek there means unblemished, undefiled, not spotted or dirty. Now let's go to the book of Revelation and, and let's read one more text and see how important it is to be found without spot, to be found undefiled uh, when the Lord comes. And so we go to Revelation 21, and it's been talking here about the holy city, the new Jerusalem that God has built for His church, you know, has built for His saints. And it says in verse 27, it says, And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that, what? Defileth. Neither whatsoever worketh abomination, or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
And so, I mean, I ask a simple question. Is there going to enter anything into it that is blemished, defiled, spotted, or dirty? No. Nothing like that is going to be in the new city, in heaven. The new world. It's not going to exist. Now, when you read in the Old Testament... And also in the New Testament. When you read in the Bible, the word unclean and the word defile are from the same word in the original languages. To be unclean or to be defiled, they're the same thing. It's equivalent to being spotted. So think about this. We go back to the Old Testament. Before Jesus died on the cross, a person who sinned, a person who sinned and who sought forgiveness, because that's important, isn't it? Uh, they were required to find a lamb, and that lamb had to be what? It had to be without what? Without spot, which means it had to be unblemished. Now, what that meant was that it couldn't be one that was sick, it couldn't be one that was diseased, it couldn't be one that was missing a limb, you know, or wounded or some such thing. Because what did that lamb represent? That was a symbol for the Messiah that was to come and live a clean life free from sinning. Right? So, it had to be without spot or blemish. See? Now, when Jesus died, he fulfilled all the types and shadows, so we no longer have to look for a lamb without a spot. We don't have to bring a lamb for sacrifice anymore. So, we look at different examples of being spotted or defiled. Okay, But the, at that particular time, the Lord was trying to teach us, teach Israel about sin, see, by these examples and what they had to do through these rituals. But we today, we look back at the cross, don't we? So we, we look at some different things uh, and different examples of being spotted or defiled. And, and usually when we think of something that is spotted or defiled, we often think of our clothes. And the Bible also. The Bible speaks in this language a lot, so we can learn about what we cannot see from what we can see, right? What do you do if your clothes are all spotted and defiled? And in most cases, you wash them clean, right? That's why we have washing machines and dryers and such. The scriptures will often liken our character to that of clothing. I'm talking about our character, okay? Notice what Isaiah says in 64 and verse 6. And you should be very familiar with this. He says, but we are all as an unclean thing. Who is? We. He says, we are all as an unclean thing. Now, when you couple what Isaiah has said there with what Paul says in the book of Romans and in other places, and, and what we've learned so far about sin, I hope some puzzle pieces are starting to come together in your mind. He says, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And so what is it that 
that Isaiah compares our righteousnesses to. He says, our righteousness is like what? Filthy rags. And I'll tell you something, friends. If Christians knew the proper meaning of this word filthy, yeah, I, I often wonder this, if they'd make such a, uh, a liberal use of it. Because this is a word in the original language, and, and the way that the Jews were, they didn't even mention the name of Christ. And this is one of those words that it was so filthy, <laughs> it was, was kind of nasty. I'm sure they didn't like to use it either. Because this expression literally means a menstruous garment. So let that sink into your mind. So Isaiah is saying that our righteousnesses, our good works, our right doings are, are really defiled in the worst way. So when you see the definition of sin as missing the mark by falling short, remember, we need to understand that it is a most terrible thing to miss the mark, to sin. We fall short in the most egregious, nasty of ways. And we'll do so every single time unless we have help from a source outside of ourselves. We should never think, and and I'm not accusing any of you of of this, but we should never have the attitude, we should never think that, oh, ho, hum, I missed the mark that time by falling short. Because we need to understand that when we fall short, how God sees it, it, it's in the filthiest way when compared to the righteousness of God. You get what's being said here when, when Isaiah says that? Our filthy, our right, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Isaiah said we're all as an unclean thing, meaning an unclean person. And, and what that alludes to is it's, it's as if it, uh, someone who had leprosy. That's what the original language kind of describes. And when a person in Israel had leprosy, they were to be removed or shut out of the camp. So he said, we're all as an unclean thing. We're all like those who have leprosy who need to be shut out of the camp. That's not a good picture, is it? So because of our sin, remember, missing the mark of God by falling short of it, we are to be shut out of the camp unless there's a change. And friends, uh, uh, unless a source outside of ourselves changes us, we will most definitely be removed from God's camp forever. (coughs) Well, how is this defilement going to be removed so that we will be ready? Remember, we want to be ready when Jesus returns, right? So how's that going to be removed? Our defilement must be uprooted or we won't, we're not going to be ready, see. So how is this defilement uprooted? Let's look at 1 John 1 and verse 7. John said, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son does what? Cleanseth us from all sin. 
John says the blood of Jesus will cleanse us of all sin. Because you see, it is sin that defiles us. It turns us into a leper in need of removal from the camp of God. And you could read many texts in the Bible that, that talk about that. So it is our sins, our transgressions, our iniquities against God's law that defile us. But it says here that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from every sin, every transgression, every iniquity. That's what the word all signifies there in verse 7. All. Now I want to go a little deeper right now and try to understand this cleansing process and what it is that makes us defiled and how it is that we can be cleansed. Okay? So we already know from what we just read in 1 John 1, 7 that we need to be cleansed from all sin because all sin is what defiles us. But now let's go further than that and find out how it is that sin does defile us. How's that happen? And we've looked at it before in our series of studies here. And the Bible definition of sin is only found in 1 John 3, 4. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. It is transgressing God's law that defiles us. We are lawless. We are lawbreakers. Now, let's take a look at the law. Okay? I think many people have a really shallow concept of the law of God. But let's just look at one commandment. As an example, let's look at one a short one. Let's look at the sixth commandment. What does the sixth commandment say? Thou shalt not kill. Right? Now, this is talking about murder. So you look at it, and many people, they'll say, they think, and they'll say, I haven't shot anybody. I haven't stabbed anybody, so I've not killed or murdered anybody. I am innocent of shedding anyone's blood. By the way, is that even true? Really? Think about it for a minute. Let's think about that just for a minute. You may say, I've never killed or murdered anyone, right? So let's think about this a minute. Paul said in, in Romans 3.23, he said, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, right? So all have sinned, well, except Jesus, right? Except the Lord Jesus. He says, all have sinned. In Romans 5, 6, he says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. So Jesus died for those who were guilty of sin. That's the ungodly. Or he died for all because all have sinned and fallen short of the mark of God. Right? This is what Paul's saying. Could you not then say that our sins killed or murdered the innocent one who never sinned? Jesus? Let that sink in a little bit. Think about that for a moment while we look at this further. 
Because most people never really even think about the cost of sin and the cause of sin. Most will come right out and say, you know, I've never stabbed or shot anyone to death, so I'm not guilty of killing anyone. Well, Jesus, when he was here, one of the things that he did, he took the commandments and he, he spoke about them in a spiritual sense. And he explained them so we could understand the root of sin and then how it can be uprooted in our life. John echoes that in 1 John 3 and verse 15. He echoes what Jesus taught. He says, Whosoever hateth his brother is a what? A murderer. And you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. And so as we're thinking about this, you know, oh, I've never stabbed or shot anybody, so I'm not guilty of that. Well, is that true? John says, Whoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And to follow that thought out, Paul goes on in Romans 8 and verse 7 to say, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? What is enmity? It's hatred, isn't it? And Paul says that the carnal mind, and that's the mind that exists in the ungodly, and remember, that is who Jesus died for. Remember? And Paul said, all have sinned, so we were all ungodly, right? So Paul's saying, they have a hatred, an enmity, they have a hatred for God. Now let's back up, and John said what? Whosoever hateth his brother, let alone God who made his brother, is what? He's a murderer. So let's not think that that none of us are, are murderers just because we haven't personally stabbed or pulled a gun out and shot anyone. Friends, our sins are what murdered the innocent Jesus. You know, that's why you go to James and James says to us, you break one commandment of God and you've broken them all. That includes the sixth commandment as well, doesn't it? But how does that really make us all murderers when we haven't physically stabbed, you know, strangled, or shot someone to death? What was it that John said? And again, he was echoing the words of Christ. Where does hate originate? And we looked at this in our last study about how it starts in the mind, right? It starts in our head, in our mind. Uh, before you actually take a gun and you pull the trigger or pick up a knife and stab somebody, you have hatred in your heart, in your mind. And that's where sin begins. And that is where we get defiled, in the mind. In Matthew 5.21, Jesus has just quoted the sixth commandment. And notice what he says in the very next verse. Matthew 5.22, But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, that means, uh, that's a word that means good for nothing or stupid. They shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. So, 
the person that is angry with his brother without a cause, Jesus says, they've broken the sixth commandment. In his mind, he has killed him just as much as the guy that shot him. And in this, he has sinned. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes through several commandments. He goes through the seventh commandment. He says the same thing about it. In that it begins in the mind, see? If you just look on someone with lust, you have committed sin in your heart. So it's in the mind where we get defiled by sin. Now I want to ask you a deeper question. What is the basis of all sin in the mind? Because sin begins in the mind, right? It is acted out by the body or it comes out on the tongue, but it begins in the mind. Now there's a basic principle that underlies all sin that goes on in the mind and I want you to understand it. In fact, we got to understand it if we're going to uproot it. This basic principle is what defiles the mind. And when the mind is defiled, every thought is defiled. All the words are defiled. All our actions are defiled. Hence, all our righteousnesses, as Isaiah said, are stained like filthy menstrual rags. So the mind has to be changed. It has to be cleansed and changed. When we talk about the blood of Jesus cleansing us from sin, what is it that is supposed to be cleansed? Is it just erasing what's on the, a record somewhere? Or is it something that actually happens within the person? The Notice what we read in Hebrews 9 and verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, notice, purge your what? Conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's an interesting statement. So it's not just a record. You know, God doesn't just pull out His eraser and erase your sins from the record well that happens but it's more than that isn't it something gets purged from us what is your conscience Webster's 1828 edition says I'm going to read some definitions here Webster's 1828 edition says Conscience is the faculty, power, or inward principle which decides as to the character of one's own actions, purposes, and affections. Warning against and condemning that which is wrong and approving and prompting to that which is right. Notice he says the moral faculty passing judgment on one's self. Webster says the moral sense. He says that's what the conscience is. Moral sense. Now, the Longman Dictionary of Contemporary English, 4th edition, I just happened to choose that one because it was like included in my software on my laptop. <laughs> and I looked at it. It defines conscience as this. The part of your mind that tells you whether what you're doing is morally right or wrong. 
pretty interesting, isn't it? So both of them talk about moral, talk about morality. Both of these uh, dictionaries use that word. Well, what does moral mean? Webster's defines moral as relating to the practice, manners, or conduct of men as social beings in relation to each other and with reference to right and wrong. The word moral is applicable to actions that are good or evil, virtuous or vicious. And notice this, he says, and has reference to the law of God as the standard by which their character is to be determined. So I think it's fair to say that the conscience is the reasoning center of the mind and through that reasoning center, a person's morals are developed for good or for bad. And what does that do? That determines that person's character. Does that sound accurate? Notice this. This is uh, from Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5. It says, Conscience is the voice of God heard amid, amid the conflict of human passions. When it is resisted, the Spirit of God is grieved. <laughs> That's an incredible statement. Conscience is the voice of God, heard amid the conflict of human passions. Remember, in the Garden of Eden, God came looking for us. So God's speaking to us. In our mind, remember we've studied this uh, in uh, one of the previous studies in this series, God communicates to us through the nervous system, that part of our brain that's included in the frontal lobe. So conscience is the voice of God. It's that small, you know, we always say, well, I had that, uh, that little voice spoke to me, Right? It's heard amid the conflict of human passions. Our passions are trying to tell us, I selfishly want to do this, 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 and this. And God's in there in our head saying, but that would break the commandments. That goes against my character. I want you to, to be brought back to the image you were created in, to reflect my character. So in the New Covenant, the mind or the conscience, is to be cleansed. And is to be cleansed from all sin. Cleansed not just from the fruit of sin. See? When you take a gun, you pull the trigger, and you kill somebody, friends, that's just the fruit of sin. That is a sinful action, and you are going to be judged on that. But if you're going to be cleansed from sin, you have to not only be cleansed from the action, but you have to go to the root of the problem. Otherwise, the problem's still there waiting to be manifested again in some other physical action. Notice Titus chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. He says, Unto the pure all things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works 
they deny him, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. They're ungodly. It doesn't matter what they profess because the fruit of their character is sin. And what makes up their character? The decisions that they've made for right or wrong. What's in their mind? Now, there are a lot of people trying to overcome sin in their lives. So you know what they do? They cut off a fruit. They cut off a fruit and they say, you know, I'm not going to eat that anymore. Or I'm not going to drink that anymore. Or I'm not going to say that anymore. I'm not going to wear that anymore. I'm not going to listen to that anymore. I'm not going to do that anymore. Aren't I a holy one now? But all they've done is cut off the fruit. And it's really trimmed up real nice. But there is still something underneath that is growing in the heart, in the mind. That sin in the mind has to be cleansed, friends. It has to be uprooted, or the fruit, it's going to grow back. Please don't doubt what I'm saying about this. If the fruit of sin is not removed at the root, and you cannot remove it, friends, only God can, it will return. It will manifest itself in some way. Whether it, I mean, some people, they, they won't actually do the action outwardly, but they hold it in and it destroys their physical health and as their mental health as well. It will be manifested in some way. And as Paul says in Hebrews 6.6, 6, they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. And so we read in Hebrews 9 that our conscience has to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. So what is the sacrifice of Jesus supposed to do for our minds? I mean, have you ever asked yourself that question? What was it exactly that Jesus did on that cross when He sacrificed Himself? What does that do for our mind? Well, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, His blood that was shed, is to cleanse our conscience. And how does the sacrifice of Jesus change our minds, our conscience? Well, did you know that it changed the, the minds of the apostles? After Jesus was crucified, the apostles thought completely different than they had ever thought before. I mean, have you seen that? As you, as you read the Gospels, you see what kind of character they had and you, you see what was going on. But after the cross, something was different. The death of Christ made a permanent change in their minds. And friends, I'll tell you, if you think about it and you understand what happened there at the cross, it will make a permanent change in your mind too. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, Paul tells us that since Christ died on the cross, it should have an effect on our minds, and it should change our minds on something. Notice what he says. He says, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. 
and that He died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto Him which died for them and rose again. So Paul's telling us that because Jesus died for us, those of us that are alive should be constrained by His love to no longer live for self. What does that word constrained mean? Very simply put, it is the opposite of restrained. So the love of Jesus doesn't hold you back. It pushes you forward. See? Forward to hit the mark and not fall short of it. Were the disciples living for themselves before Jesus died? They certainly were. You remember James and John? Zebedee's sons? They had their mother come to Jesus with a a, a request, didn't they? And what was that request? She said that that she'd like Jesus to do a favor for her. And, And Jesus asked her, well, what's the favor? Look at Matthew 20, verse 21. He says, well, you know, What favor is that? She says, Grant these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on the left in thy kingdom. Now that's something, isn't it? These two men, they don't go and ask ask Jesus themselves. They go and they get mom to do it. See? I mean, maybe mom has a little bit more weight with, with Jesus, right? It's just interesting. Kids seem to learn that at an early age, don't they? (laughs) Let's go to mom, right? Let's get mom to ask dad if we can do this. But you know, when the ten other disciples heard about it, what was their reaction? They had indignation against those two brothers. Now let me ask you, why did they they have indignation against, against them? It says something about the other ten. Because each one of them coveted those same two positions. And they were mad. They were angry. I mean, now now what's the Lord supposed to do? Here are His twelve apostles, and they all want the highest positions. Have you ever read in the Bible about anybody else that wanted the highest position? I mean, really, it's why we're all here today. There was a creature named Lucifer. And the sin issue that we're talking about, we've been studying here, it started with Lucifer. Now, how did it start? Well, he started thinking about himself. And he started living for himself. And he wanted to exalt himself. He wanted to be like God. You see, it was self, self, self. You read about it in Isaiah chapter 14. Lucifer developed what kind of problem? Deb and I talked about the other night. He had an eye problem, didn't he? He had an eye problem in his mind, and the fruit of sin flowed out from there to a third of the angels before it was all said and done. And then it it flowed out to the Garden of Eden and to man. And that is how sin began. And it's a mystery to us. It's the mystery of sin, the mystery of iniquity. And that is the root of sin. That I live for myself. I love myself. I please myself. I work for myself. 
I play for myself. I get married for myself. My family is for myself. I dress, eat, and live for myself. Friends, that is the root of sin. That is why marriages fail. And we have all this fighting. That's why we have strife in institutions. And we have strife in churches. It is the root of the sin problem. It's selfishness. I want what's best for me. And you want what's best for you. So what do we do? We squabble and fight about it. We fight over the fruits and we never think to uproot the root of it all. And selfishness is one of the signs of the last days. According to 2 Timothy 3, where it says that in the last days men will be lovers of themselves. Selfishness is the root of the sin problem. When you have the root of the sin problem, every thought you think is founded in sin. And this is why, friends, we fall short of the mark every single time we try. Every effort is tainted. Your thoughts are tainted with selfishness. As Isaiah says, like filthy menstrual rags. It all proceeds from a selfish heart. And so the the root of sin has to come out. And it has to come out before you can be saved. And Paul said that because Jesus died, we're not supposed to live for ourselves anymore. We are not our own, for we have been purchased. So we must now live for the one who purchased us. Right? Now look at Philippians 2. Let's look at verses 6 to 8. Here Paul, he's talking about Jesus. He said, Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Let's think about those words a second here. We know that the the root of sin is selfishness. What does this describe? It doesn't describe selfishness, does it? Think about it. Jesus was the majesty of heaven. He was God. Paul says here, even though he was God, he didn't consider being God as something that he should hold on to. It was not something to covet. So he emptied himself of all that. He left all that behind. And he came to this world as a man. And when he came to this world as a man, He came fashioned like a servant, and he humbled himself unto death, as Paul says, even the death of the cross, which is the worst death you can imagine. And so what what should we learn from this? Well, let's back up a few verses there in Philippians 2. Let's look at verses 3 to 5. Paul says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, That means meekness, 
lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, what's in it for me, right? But every man also on the things of others. Let this what be in you? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So Jesus was willing to die so that we might live, right? He was willing to take all our sins. Remember all three phases that we've studied. Iniquities, transgressions, and sins so that we could have His righteousness. He was willing to suffer so we might not have to suffer. He was willing to experience death so that we could experience life. And as Paul said, right there he described it, Jesus esteemed us better than himself. And he was God. And let me tell you, friends, if Jesus didn't have a mind like that, you and I would be lost. Eternally so. So, what is the essence or the root of sin? It's living only for yourself or selfishness. That's the root of sin. That is what is in our minds that must come out. And so, again, we read in, in uh, Hebrews 9 that Jesus came and died so that He might cleanse the conscience, that He could cleanse our mind. What does Jesus do to remove the root of sin from my mind? Look at Hebrews 10 and verse 16. This is why he says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them. We can't write them in our minds and in our heart. It has to be that finger of God who first wrote them on two tables of stone. He writes them in our hearts and in our mind. And what does it mean to have God's law written in your mind? Well, what is at the heart of God's law? What is the basis of God's law? Well, Jesus really, He sums it up for us. Matthew chapter 22. Remember? Verses 36-39 that They came to him and they said, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And notice what he said in verse 40. He said, On these two commandments... Hang all the law and the prophets. They're not done away with. All the law and the prophets hang on those two commandments. So what is he really saying? What is the basic principle of the law of God? Well, it's just the opposite of selfishness. Selfishness is when you what? You love yourself, right? The basic principle of the law is that you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You see, it's just the opposite of selfishness. The enmity that you have against God is removed from the mind. 
And the love of God is placed into it so that we can even love our enemies. Isn't that remarkable? It's a miracle. It's supernatural. When Paul tried to describe what love was, remember the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13? What did he say? He said it does not seek its own. (laughs) It doesn't seek its own. It's not selfish. And that's what it means to have God's law written in your mind. Selfishness is taken out. And God's law is written in your mind so that you love Him with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And beloved, when that happens in your mind, the selfishness has been uprooted. And the whole universe, they can look on and the angels that that can read your thoughts can see that there's no selfish thought. There are no selfish words. There is no selfish action. Now, this is a process, this writing in our hearts and minds. So the more we walk with Jesus, the more He can write in our hearts and minds, see? So you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbors, yourself, and your fruits are no longer the fruits of sin, but the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, then you're ready for Jesus to come. And that's what it means to be ready. The root of sin is taken out of your mind. And Jesus wants to take out the root of sin and put in your heart love for God and for your fellow man. Notice this from a great book, Christ's Object Lessons, page 254. The only remedy for the sins and sorrows of men is Christ. The gospel of His grace alone can cure the evils that curse society. He alone, for the selfish heart of sin, gives the new heart of love. And that's what will prepare you to be ready when Jesus comes. A new heart of love that replaces the old heart of selfishness. Now the Bible says that we're going to be judged by our actions. Because our actions show what really is in our hearts. And there are many people that are petrified and they're terrified of the judgment. And they should be, right? Because if a change does not happen in their hearts, they're going to be condemned in the judgment. But did you know that there are going to be some people that will have nothing to fear in the judgment? Friend, would you like to be in a condition so that you are ready for Jesus to come and you don't have to be afraid of the judgment? And with what we've just been studying, I think you'll be able to understand exactly how this works and why why it's so. Look at 1 John 4, verses 16 18. Notice what he says. Notice what John says. He says, And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. That Greek word for boldness means assurance. We may have assurance in the day of judgment because as He is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. 
So the Apostle John says that there will be some people that will have boldness, they'll have assurance, they will, they will have this in the day of judgment. They'll have nothing to fear. And who are these people? <laughs> they are people that love God with all their heart, soul, and minds, and love their neighbors themselves. That's why they have nothing to be afraid of in the judgment. Again, why is that? Go back to 1 John chapter 2. Verses 3 to 5. And hereby we do know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. He that saith, I know Him, and keepeth not His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth His word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in Him. If you have the love of God in your heart, friends, the Bible tells us, you will keep His commandments. God's love is perfected in the one that keeps His word. So how are you going to be ready for the second coming? Because remember, Jesus said, as in the days of Noah, He said it's going to happen as a surprise, so you need to be ready. You can't get ready when the surprise comes. I mean, when the rain started to, to fall in Noah's day, it was too late to get ready and enter the ark. The door had already been closed. So they had to have been ready before that, didn't they? Now is the time to get ready. Now is the time for all the spots and wrinkles to come out of your character. What is it that defiles you? The Bible says it's sin. And what is the root problem of sin? It's selfishness. You're living just for yourself. And where is the root found? In our minds, in our conscience. And when the root of sin is taken out, we begin to live for somebody else. When we love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, so we obey Him. And when we love our neighbor as ourselves, so that we keep the last six of the Ten Commandments, a complete change happens inside of us. And as we start to practice what John says, and we abide in Him, that is, we stay in love with Jesus, then we remain or continue in God. See? And we don't have to be afraid of the judgment. And as I looked at the, the roots, remember I, my mom's flower bed? I'll get back to that as I close up here. As I looked, looked at the roots of that pervasive plant from mom's flower bed, I determined that I could not do it by myself. And I needed help. I needed the help of my trimmer. And I need some tools. And friends, we cannot remove the root of sin ourselves because everything we do falls short of the mark of God. We need help in uprooting sin. We need a supernatural force to aid us in uprooting the root of sin from our mind, from our conscience. And it's Jesus that can remove the root for you. Jesus, in His life here, He proved that He's an expert at that. He didn't sin once, though He was tempted in all points as like we are. He did not fall short of the mark. And when we have that mind of Jesus, a mind like that of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts, that's what we need to hit the mark. See? So friends, will you ask the Lord to take the root of sin out of your heart? It has to come out. 
It has to come out if you're going to be saved and ready for the second coming of Jesus. John said in 1 John 1, 9, he said, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No longer filthy menstrual rags, but the robe of Christ's righteousness. If you'd like to give yourself completely to Jesus and allow Him to uproot sin from your conscience, to cleanse you of all your unrighteousness, well, friends, I humbly ask you to pray with me now. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for your long-suffering and mercy towards each one of us. Especially your love. Each time we read our Bible and we, we look at the words that you've protected for all these ages, we are astonished as we learn how deep that love really is. And more so when we come to the foot of the cross. We ask humbly that you forgive us our, clean, our, our sins and, and we ask that you cleanse us with that blood that was shed there at the cross. Cleanse our conscience. Create in us a clean heart and mind so that our actions, the, the fruits of our labors, bring glory to Thee for our character will be the image of Jesus. We thank you so much for the Sabbath day and for hearing our prayers. For we ask in Jesus' name, Amen.